Hello, I'm Mihari Tivoyu, and it is my great pleasure to bring you in today's episode of Quarantine Notes, the conversation I had with Lucy Parham. Lucy is one of Britain's finest pianists, a leading interpreter of works by Robert and Clara Schumann, and the creator of the highly successful series of composer portraits in which she collaborates with leading actors. She is also in demand as a professor, artistic director and broadcaster. Lucy is a disciple of the very famous professor John Havill, with whom I have also had the chance to study during my time at the Guildhall School. Having met Lucy for the first time a few years ago, I knew that she was a very generous person and also someone who would be very insightful and, not least, very fun to have a long chat with. I am therefore delighted that she accepted my invitation to be on the podcast. Hello, Lucy, and uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be on uh, my podcast, uh, which I started at a moment that was, uh, at least for me, but I think for other musicians too, very confusing and um, uh, quite um, scary. And um, it's been very interesting to interview and, and hear very different answers to this. And I just would like to start by asking you, um, how, how has this quarantine been? for you so far? Well, I have to say, I would love to say I'm one of these people that used the quarantine to read the complete works of Dostoevsky and learn the last three Schubert piano sonatas. And, um, you know, may <laughs> unfortunately, that hasn't happened. <laughs> um, not through lack of will, but actually in the beginning of the quarantine, I myself wasn't well. I had a condition that made me very, very dizzy. Um, called labyrinthitis and I had to cancel a lot of concerts before we went into lockdown so I for the first sort of month or so I've been really battling with that so I didn't really begin to get any effect of lockdown until about a month ago and that's only when I've started to practice again and start teaching online and everything like that but it's a, I was talking to a friend the other day and I thought it's a really strange thing because I suppose I've played professionally since I was 16 and I'm now 54. So I never had, like none of us as musicians, you know, there was no sabbatical, no gap year, no, none of this stuff at all. So in a, in a really weird way, I was enjoying having the luxury of a little bit of time in, in the beginning of this, just a little bit of space um to because i just don't think we don't have any any time in life to to just reflect even if even if i would go on a walk in in old life you know i'd be on my phone doing things um making appointments so every every hour was multitask that you could never just go for a walk you, you're trying to do something else at the same time so now just to be able to discover that has been has been a, a real joy and I'm finally coming back to the piano now actually and, and doing those things of just reading through some pieces I mean just going through all the Chopin nocturnes things like that which has given me great joy and things that I like to learn but I haven't done anything major and I've done no online anything and so I'm not a good, I, I look with wonderment at people that have turned their homes into you know, Deutsche Grammophon recording studios, and I haven't done anything like that at all. I feel I've become a bit of a recluse, actually, um, and just, you know, chatting to people on the phone, but or enjoying time to watch Netflix, read a book and everything, because it's so, life is tough, isn't it? I mean, we as musicians, we don't have time to do those things. Yes, and I think that is so comforting for me to hear uh, from you, and I'm, I'm sure for, for other people that uh, it is okay that... Uh, I spent the first uh, three or four weeks of <laughs> quarantine uh, bird watching and uh, watching Netflix <laughs> and 
really enjoying this time. Um, and yes, because it, it is really precious, uh, the, the actual the ability, the chance to do less at some point when uh, all the time one, one uh, and especially someone with a busy career like you has to do so much all the time. And I think I think it's um, very yeah it's very important that we do have that time and I know some of our colleagues are very super focused and very driven and have as you say used this time really productively but I think to be honest it depends on the individual doesn't it for me it's equally as productive just to have a little hibernation for for some time I mean of course the problem now becomes the the financial problem and you know, you think, well, you can chug along for a month or something. And, and but then you suddenly think, well, that was OK, but now going forward is not OK. And then, of course, you begin to it, it stops being a nice holiday and becomes a reality. And that's where we all are now. That is obviously a different topic. But I feel my my focus has shifted a little bit now from from that to to worrying very very seriously about the future in the beginning i i was very optimistic and then every day that goes past i'm not quite so optimistic yes that is um i have also been very happy to live in the present uh up until now but th there are some some very um threatening uh big questions that um, haunt us with re regarding the future of, of our profession. Um, it's really worrying. And as I mean, you, you know, I, I work a lot with actors and um, it's exactly the same for them, of course. And there's no filming, there's no theatre. So any of us who are live on stage, we were stuck, absolutely stuck. But even uh, filming for... Um for films is is uh, it's not yeah, possible at the moment well. yeah in moment i believe there's nothing although i think things are beginning to start to take shape a little bit and of course if you have a small crew who can all be socially distant and um i think the actors will be tested they'll have a quarantine for two weeks before tested and then because of course you can't make films when people can't get close to each other and you know no kind of um physical intimacy can take place at all and and not not everything can be taking place two meters apart because it's not replicating life then is it life doesn't take place two meters apart but i think filming will probably be the first thing to come back actually because you haven't got the audience problem with that and everyone can be quarantined before filming starts and so as far as I know I'm not speaking as an expert from the little bit I know that my friends have told me in that world um they're they're hopeful of filming sooner rather than later right that's but sadly well... we're not going to be doing any filming so. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's not for us it's not for us sadly but how are you coping with it all it... um well me for for the time being i'm i'm enjoying having all the free time and um the privilege of practicing uh, whatever i want to be practicing and i'm actually i can afford to be much more consistent with my practice which uh, is is something that i have been feeling guilty for not doing in 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 recent um in the recent time so that has been very good um I'm I'm starting to to miss uh, the ability to travel and and find all these uh, social distancing rules very unnatural to yeah. enforce. Although I understand their purpose, but it is hard to to meet friends and to to start calculating. Oh, yeah. wait, you and know, you can't passing. just put your arms, you know. And we're also used to hug each other, hello, and wah wah wah. Yes, it's, yes, it's and really difficult, isn't it? It's natural. For Absolutely, for us humans, <laughs> I think so. Um, but speaking of actors, I I've been meaning to ask you um, because of um, obviously your very well known project uh, is the composer uh, portraits, yes, uh, in which you collaborate with actors and you have these these beautiful um, shows where word and music come together, um, which um, I funny enough I find that quite a Schumanesque idea uh, thinking of his literary side also 
And well, I, as I, you know, that, that's where it started actually with him and with his letters. And, and so it, it's, it's, it's not a, that's not a random connection. That, that's a very uh, real connection. So, so that's how it started. Yes. It started with, um, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt your, your question there, but it, um, it started, but it started with me talking too much in my own concerts, introducing, and I'd be yabba di yabba yabba and play a piece that, something like the, the, the C major fantasy, which you play so amazingly yourself. And then I would always just chat to the audience a little bit before, you know, this piece was written out of his love for Clara, the theme at the beginning, just a little bit. And then I found the letters and then I'd start reading them, the letters on stage. And um, then people would say, oh, that's really interesting to hear that letter before you played the piece. And as this time went on, I thought there must be a way to have a little bit more of the letter and a bit less of the music to make more of a, of a balance. And so it really came out of me talking too much in my own concerts. And I thought somebody should speak professionally, not me, with my little piece of paper <laughs> at the stage going, and Clara said, so I thought how different it will be if a real actor reads that. And then we hear um, the music that is inhabited by them. And did you have a lot of actor friends before that, or is that how you no, got to I know? No, I didn't know. I know I knew zero actors, not not one. But um, I'd always loved going to the theatre. It was a big passion of mine. I was going to say slightly more than going to concerts, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I love the escapism of going to the theatre. So, of course, I love going to concerts as well. But... I think when I was student at Guildhall, I used to go to the Royal Shakespeare Company a lot because then they were in the Barbican. And that's what made me understand Shakespeare. Because, you know, kids at school, they learn Shakespeare and they don't understand what it, we, we don't really understand it. But then I went for the first time and I think that really fostered a kind of love for, for piano. So um, the, the, the road to finding uh, actors has been a, a long one. And um, it, it's, it's, yielded lots of surprises because many of these wonderful people have become my good friends over the years and that's opened up a lot of doors and a lot of interesting other projects that I might I might never have been involved with. I don't know if you remember but um, there's, a, there's a wonderful play called Duet for One which is loosely based on the life of um, Jacqueline Dupre although it's written as a violinist um, and in in relationship with her therapist, um, who's a sort of Freudian analysis, just two people on the stage, the, 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 the violinist who's recently been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and the therapist. And it's a, it's a very well-known play. And um, two actors I work with a lot, Juliet Stevenson and Henry Goodman, were doing it at the Almeida Theatre in London. And it was at that point when I went to see it, I didn't know either of them. And they're both two of my, you know, idol actors. I love them both very much. Anyway, to fast forward some years, we actually did my show about Chopin and Georges Sand in that very theatre with those two actors. And just as I had one of those moments where I thought, this is, this is not real, this is not, because these are two of my favourite actors on the planet. And we're in the space where I saw them perform Duet for One. It's a chamber piece, it's just for two actors. And here we are in this space in London, this famous theatre, and um, doing a show about Chopin and Georges Sand. So sometimes little moments happen like that and you think, oh, that's, that's really nice. And I kind of, I don't do as much solo playing as I did, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And actually when I do a recital now, I kind of miss having my dressing room to share with a nice actress because they always, you know, have lovely stories to tell and, but we have fun times together and it's well you know me it's so solitary when you're solo when you're being solo pianist and not doing chamber music it's isn't it it's, it's it solitary. Is. absolutely yes yeah and um yes i i love this idea obviously um when when i was studying in romania it was a very different um approach to performing so it was even more severe um for example I wasn't ever encouraged to talk on stage by my teachers. 
um, and um, this I, I really think it, it brings a, a, a wonderful element and uh, I can see how having an actor with their uh, sort of different personalities around uh, might really enhance the experience <laughs> uh, it, it's it's absolutely it's it's true because I think you get a different sort of delivery and I think also if the audience feel they're in the room with Schumann or Robert and Clara and then they bring them to life and then you hear the music it, it all it all molds together to make a proper not so much a story but maybe more of an experience I think you feel a little bit more as if you know these composers they're not just people on a bookshelf or people at school you sort of the little bust of the composer on the music school they become real people um i hope for the audience and therefore hopefully they would take something that that away with them and want to hear more of their music it's not just music it's it's part of somebody's real life i think yes yes i think that's that's wonderful and and really important to um perhaps um revamp a bit the the concept of the solo recital which um yeah do you think it's changing do you, do you think do you think there's a different um a different requirement now i mean even from when you were growing up in romania do you think there's fewer fewer solo piano recitals now do you think people are trying to be more well in Romania, uh, certainly there, there are fewer piano recitals, uh, like straight piano recitals of two. Um, um, that's obviously they, they, they still happen at the Wigmore Hall, uh, that there's uh, a certain audience which goes there. But I, I wonder if the format is um, a little bit... Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I think it is, I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think you're, um, I think you're right. I think, I think people are maybe hungry for slightly new experiences. And I think there'll always be a home for the solo recital. Um, but I think it tends to be more from kind of iconic artists. I think what's much harder now is for people at music college or just leaving music college to find this path with with a solo recital and also for chamber music as well there just don't seem to be so many opportunities as there used to be now maybe i've imagined that but when i look around and i think of the wonderful opportunities i had in my 20s through amazing schemes and through doing um a lot of work for people like raymond gabe i had a chance to play all the main concertos in the big halls in london um, you know, this was really incredible. And I think there are fewer of those opportunities around now and more people looking for them and fewer of them. So more, more hands in the pot and the pot is smaller. <laughs> yes, that, that would have been actually one of my questions because, uh, I, as you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in, in the room, a certain room 120 in the Guildhall School. <laughs> I wonder whose whose room was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, of course, our wonderful teacher Joan Havill, and now I believe it is also your room. Uh, is it where you're teaching in Guildhall? Well, actually, it's not. Although, funnily enough, I I did have that on Saturdays for a little bit, but um, no, I have a room on the on the ground floor, and um, it is it is quite strange. I've spent a lot of my life in a Guildhall School of Music and Drama because I went there as a, um, as a junior um, student when I was 16, and then as a senior at 17, and then, you know, six years, it's a long part of your, it's a long part of your life. And then I started to teach in junior department, which I really, really enjoyed. I think it's a fascinating age group of um, children, young adults to be teaching age 10 to 18, because you, you can really do a lot. And, and I think, Maybe we as teachers forget how influential we are on someone who's 14 years old. I still remember my teachers from this time with great love. And um, so it's, I suppose we forget that as a teacher, when, you, when you're a, a student of, of that age, 
that teacher for one hour is that probably the only adult you spend one hour in a room with apart from your parents it's so i think it's you you're very influential and I, i think it's a privilege actually to teach in that age group and i enjoyed it very very much but um because of it being junior school it's on saturday and I was probably missing every other week during concerts, maybe every two and three. So it became untenable for me to do that, but I enjoyed it. And I also very much like teaching in a senior school. And it's a, it's, it's a privilege actually. It really is. I take it. I take my teaching really seriously. Do, do you find Guildhall to be a very different place now uh, from when you were studying there? Well, funny enough, not really apart from the logistics of having to swipe keys around all over the place to get anywhere um which is just life of of today i think the atmosphere in guildhall has always been great because it's it's always been quite laid back maybe compared with the other colleges it's a little bit more laissez faire i don't know maybe it's to do with the, the modern building i don't know but i find it to be in many ways quite similar and i think having milton court has been a great um development and that is a beautiful hall so i mean ultimately i don't know if you agree with this but i think most people will choose the college because of the professor rather than yes. the building itself i mean we both went to to joan havel and you know she's a legendary piano professor in this country and i think of course the guildhall played a part in that but our main thing was to find our our first professor would you would you agree with that absolutely and that that is um, entirely what dictated uh, the choice of college for me and i remember um i was actually having master classes with uh, dominique merlet the french pianist um and uh, his advice was that i should go to john havel and um I went and I just had one lesson with her and I, I was convinced uh, I mean when when Guildhall accepted me there was no question of uh, thinking to apply anywhere else um but at the same time um having to go uh, sometimes for various things in in the other uh, in the Royal Academy or the Royal College it it strikes me how there is certainly a different uh, atmosphere a different vibe in in the different colleges and I I do feel this uh, laid back as you said atmosphere in guildhall which which I enjoyed um yeah so I I spent my young years in um the Royal Academy um from age of t- 10 to 16 and um in a special junior program that doesn't exist anymore and it was called a junior junior academy or it's not the Saturday school but on Thursday afternoon we were about a dozen young musicians and the idea was that these young people would have the chance to learn um with professors from the senior school so um and there were a lot of you know wonderful musicians who I met then who are now in the profession Anthony Marwood violinist uh, Robert Max cellist uh Rachel Goff um bassoonist James Kirby pianist we were we were a, 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 a quite a tight nits little group i don't think that exists anymore but anyway I, the only reason i tell you that is because i did spend many years in 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 the academy and it was a different it was a very different feel how it is now i don't know because i obviously don't teach that but yeah yes so um you mentioned earlier that uh you've been playing professionally since you were 16 and yeah, i wonder you believe it <laughs> I can and I wonder if if that coincides with um, the Schumann competition. Uh, um it coincides with uh no actually when I was 16 I won a um a competition that doesn't exist anymore called it was it's it was a piano competition for juniors called the Surrey Young Pianist of the Year and it was a national piano competition and out of that I was only 16 but I actually got some days to play with orchestra and recitals and things like that. Um probably I don't know six or eight things but I was still at school you know I was I hadn't even done my what was then O levels is now GCSEs. So that's when I started and then um two years after that for your musician of the year. Um I see. Which I I I was the winner of the piano class not the whole competition and um 
the winner that year was a clarinetist called Emma Johnson, who's a very good friend of mine. And it's really nice we have that relationship after all these years. Um, and then, yeah, I just started. I was already at Guildhall and suddenly I only knew three concertos, Mihai, and suddenly people were, oh, can you play Ratmaninov too? Can you play the Tchaikovsky? I only played, I played Mozart K467, César Franck Symphonic Variations and um, the Schumann Concerto. That's all I knew. Um, so I had to suddenly learn, you know, Grieg and loads of Mozart and Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky and all these things um, was, a, it was a lot to do. And I never, I really never stopped. So it was very focused and I had no repertoire of solo either. So th that's what I meant about having a bit of time. I, since then I never stopped. And so now some 40 something years later, um, 40 odd years later, that was why it was nice to have a bit of time just to, you know, calm down a little bit. Of course. Do you have, um, do you have already a composer in mind for the next portrait whenever it will be possible again? Um, I, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure that I will do another one. I have six at the moment and they've been carefully chosen because of the whole thing of, um, there being a lot of repertoire, piano repertoire from that composer and that I can mix it up. So all these great romantic composers have been fantastic because you can mix up the sounds, the sound worlds, but I don't think it would work with a, an evening of Mozart or something because um, you have to chop up the um, sonatas so much. So I, it, they work because you've got for instance, in Rachmaninoff, you've got, you know, you've got all the preludes, you've got all the etudes, you've got the transcriptions. You can really mix up the story like that. Um, yes. So I don't think that I have anyone particular in mind. Do you have any suggestions? <laughs> no, I haven't no. thought of it. Um... Also, on a, on a purely commercial basis, um, it's really important that <clears throat> the composer can sell tickets so i would say even in my shows you won't believe this but it's quite hard to sell the debussy show and it's quite hard to sell the list show because a lot of people say oh i i don't like list can you imagine that and also his life is so colorful yes that is i find that very strange and um i could see how some people would say that debussy is too Modern, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know it's really, really crazy. And I always say to the promoter, well, there's so many nice pieces in it. I mean, there's a lot of the early, that the arabesque and uh, um, Colère de Lune and a girl with the flax and hair, all this kind of really famous pieces. Um, but then, of course, I play some of the etude and um, Estom, all of Estom, actually. And it's, so there's a real mixture. And I think that show, when people go, they really enjoy it because the story is great. And he was such a naughty man. And there's so many, there's so many affairs and, and lovely. He writes so um, descriptively that with a very good actor, it, 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 it comes off the page and people are saying, oh my, I had no idea that he was like that. And so it, it, theatrically, it almost works the best. Right. Um, but, but it's it's, getting it's, the people to come. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So if people say, oh, why don't you do about, one about, I don't know, Stravinsky or something. I mean, mm. if, it would be really hard for me to sell that as an evening. For us as musicians, that's kind of incomprehensible. But for promoters, you know, especially when I'm going out of town, I, it's, it's just not the easiest. It's yes. not the easiest to do. The Chopin and the Rachmaninoff, they are selling the best. I can imagine. <laughs> yes, the, uh, these are considerations that uh, exactly we as musicians, we don't realize that uh, for promoters, they, they, they have to, to keep those in mind. And uh, <laughs> there's always the, the practical and financial side of things. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, so I think for me, if I combine a, um, if I combine a really the one of the most well-known composers, with one of the most well-known actors, then that's the best selling combination. 
But I, I don't know if I told you this, but I went to, um, I went to Turkey before Christmas to, um, to do my new show called I Clara, which is just me and an actress on the stage. And I did it with a wonderful um, a Turkish actress called Tilba Saran. And um, the person who invited me, a conductor called Chem Mansur, he had the script translated into Turkish, Mihai. So I was in this oh. amazing hall in Istanbul um, with an actress who speaks fantastic English, but she did the show in Turkish. So of course I know all the cues in, in English. I didn't know when to come in in my own show. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's a... it will be like me doing it with in Romanian, you know, it just will be really, really difficult. So we worked out all these little things. So if she would say something like, uh, if my cue was, and then I went for a drink or something, which it wasn't. And then she would take the, the glass and she would say, and then I went for a drink. And, and I would know just because she had the glass and she did, she did that or she said on this one i'm going to pinch my hair or do this or something so we had every key every piece of 16 17 pieces i had a different little she took the pen from the table or she went oh, like this so we had everything was worked out i was so nervous because i thought <laughs> she might just do that anyway she might just do that and i would think it's time for me to come in but she just did that so <laughs> so there was yeah. a different cue for every for every it was entry. a different cue for every piece. She was brilliant. She worked it out really well. But I must say that's the first time I walked off stage and I felt absolutely exhausted because my brain, you know, was just trying to remember if it was a recording, it would be fine. But, you know, it was live. So um, that was that's the first time I've done it in a foreign language. Oh, that's amazing. And how, how did you find the, the, um, the Turkish audience's uh, reaction? Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. We had a, an amazing reaction. I was, I was thrilled. And, and she, Tilda is a, is a mega star in Istanbul and a very respected classical actress. She's kind of our uh, Maggie Smith or Judy Dench, this kind of, you know, not as, she's a little younger than that, but she's that kind of um, fame. So people came to see her and probably didn't know what it would be, but I had a really a really nice uh, reaction to that. So it was exciting for me. And and then not much long after that, of course, we're, we're where we are. So that seems like some other lifetime ago. <laughs> exactly. From what was home. the last concert you did before the lockdown? Um, I played the uh, Rakbag, <laughs> the, the Paganini Rhapsody by Rachmaninoff on, in uh, London, in Sloan Square, actually, in, in that ah. church. Uh, Holy Trinity Church. I wish I would know, and I would have come to that. <laughs> um, I was listening. I think I should interject here and say that Mihai is too modest, but I am his number one fan. He he went. I have always been a big fan of his playing, and um, anywhere possible, <laughs> I've been saying you have to put Mihai because he's 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 brilliant. Anyway, I'm just adding that for the for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> you are too kind. And... No, I'm not. <laughs> Um, yes, and I, I I was playing it for the first time, so I was quite nervous. Um, that piece has got so many, so many tricky moments, isn't it? Hasn't it? Oh yes, yes. You have to be absolutely awake playing it. Uh, unlike, I mean, now if I had to play the second concerto by Rachmaninoff, I would be quite comfortable doing it. And you can, I I feel you can get lost in the music and just go with it, but. With this, you absolutely. <laughs> it's sort of like it's like a box of tricks, isn't it? Every every one is almost there to to catch you out, whether it's rhythmically um, or musically. They're very few, and even when you have the the famous eighteenth um, uh, variation, <clears throat> that you it's so famous that you have to be so super focused because that's the one bit that everybody knows. <laughs> Absolutely. And many people are, are coming are coming for the concert just for that, probably. <laughs> just for that three minutes of variation 18. Yes, I think um, for me, I only played that four or five times in my life. And um, I think that I won't ever be playing that again. It's it's it suits um, some people the type of uh, technique. And I found it very tricky to play compared with the second concerto and i think they're equally difficult but i agree with yes. you 
the second it sweeps you along even with all the really difficult parts like middle of slow movement and beginning of the finale and everything even with all of that you're swept along with the music aren't you yes <laughs> next time you have to tell me i i will when, when you're playing but i guess I it's a while for any of us are playing with orchestra at the moment i mean germany seems to be very um concerned with getting orchestras back to playing and they've had various meetings and uh, doctors and scientists trying to work out. Um, so, well, hopefully, hope. yeah, but we can't go to Germany, can we? Because we won't be able to get back in again. <laughs> we'll have to be quarantined <laughs> for two weeks. <laughs> but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that um, we also we need that. Do you feel the whole thing of needing to have a goal in order to practice? Are you a person? If you knew you had no concerts for two years, will you really keep your level really high? Or does, I'm a person who will work really, really hard, but I need to know that in two weeks I have a performance. That That's what keeps my, and I'm just being honest about that. It's not that I won't practice, but practicing to that level, I need to know that I'm going to walk onto a stage and 500 people have paid their hard-earned money to to come and hear me that's for me that is as big a incentive do you do you feel that yes and i'm i have to say i'm really glad um to hear you saying that because i've i've also felt like that and i found it um, incredibly hard to get the motivation to to even learn a repertoire that i know i'm, I'm not going to play and um now in in the past couple of weeks i somehow found myself practicing uh quite consistently and but it's funny because I realized in my head I was practicing for an imaginary recital that I want to be giving once it's possible. So in, maybe I tricked myself <laughs> with, a, with a carrot yes. on a stick or something. Yes, yes, yes. Because that I, I think maybe more people feel like that than would admit that. Because that that is what we are by... I know we are musicians, but we're also performers. And I think if you take, and I think it's not just for us. I, I don't know any dancers or anything, but I'm sure it must be very hard if you can't go to, if you're going to dancer and you can't go to class every day and to have the, you would have to do it, but it's really difficult when you know you're not on stage that night. And um, I think the, the ability to drift, it's, it's, the beginning was like a bit of a nice extra summer holiday. And now, thinking, whoa, 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 I have to pick this up before I can't pass my grade five with merit. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. And um... and also, um, I, I think that for me, that incentive would have to be uh, a concert with a real audience. I, I, I can't, I can't yet accept that anything done online as as great as it might be as a way to keep in touch with uh, with listeners but it it cannot come even close to to the experience of playing to it, to a live audience it, it, it can't it's 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 not the same thing is i mean it's like almost it's like making when you make a cd and and but instead of just doing several takes the first take is going to go to your audience so it, it's it's like isn't it it's you like describe, you described a bit of a nightmare now. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? Take one. That's it. You can't do it again. Yes. So you don't have any of the benefits of live audience, which is the the audience um, carrying you, carrying you. Do you? You have that fear you walk on stage, people clap, and if you play something and you feel it's gone well, then it gives you courage to keep. You know, you felt uh, equally, it can't be the other way, but you, and I think audience works as a, as a unit. Um, that's why I can't understand how anyone can sit four seats or three seats away from someone else, because even if you're in a hall, if they don't sell all the seats, often they will say, everybody come to sit together. And um, just for us as a performer to walk on and see every other every fourth, third seat sold is a really weird, it's like an open rehearsal or something. Yes, 
yes, it's, it's some disparate uh, people which seem to have no connection to each other and various reasons for being there. And uh, yeah, be very disconcerting. It's it's really true. But you were saying you miss the traveling. I have to say that's one thing I don't really miss because I know some people love the traveling, but the actual, I love the new, to see the new place, but I'm not sure that I love to get to, to the new place. I find it's quite tiring, all the traveling. Do you? Oh, well, yes. If I think of uh, waking up at 4 a.m. to get to Stansted, I certainly don't miss that. None of us want um, that. But uh, I've been um, actually quite spoiled because I've been going uh, pretty much every month to Florence uh, where, where I was taking this course in uh, conducting at the Fiesole School. Um, and that was such a wonderful escape for me every month and uh, with a really nice group of people and, and a wonderful professor, uh, Ricardo Castro, who's a pianist and a conductor. Yes, yes. And um, that's something I, I really miss. And and going home to Romania, which if, if I wanted to go for two weeks now, I'd have to be quarantined for two weeks. And it... <laughs> it it's impossible. Yes. Are, your parents are musicians, aren't they? No. The, oh, I thought you came from a, a super musical family. No, not at all. I'm the only musician. Uh, no, my, my mother is a doctor and my father is a painter. Ah, okay. So, but it's still quite artistic family. Yes, yes. My, my father actually had uh, an exhibition um, in March, right? Uh, I think he, he got the last chance to have an open... Uh... Oh, and now it's finished. Yes. Well, the, I'm sure they will love to see you, so maybe... <laughs> Maybe you can make the, the journey, although I'm not sure who wants to go on airplane at the moment, but we yes, have that's... to start we have to start going back, otherwise world will the world will just seize up and we have an economic disaster. And I think we have to take that I live in the centre of London and it's I've noticed you know, there's no one on the street, everything shut as you know. But recently, just things beginning to come back a little bit, and we just we need our lives back, back. I think, just some normality. Yes, I think so, and and I'm really afraid of of us uh, collectively getting used to this. And I, well, that's the danger, isn't it? We get used to it, and I mean, for you know, from a teaching point of view, this is very comfortable. You don't have to even leave your own home. So, yes. um, but how are you going to teach flutter pedaling if you're not in the same room as somebody? <laughs> that's the problem i mean teaching by zoom is kind of i feel it's like 50 percent. it's better than not um but it's not as good that would be my do you feel the same i i feel the same i think it it ranges uh from being extremely annoying when the connection is bad and you think the person is rushing but it's just the the connection catching up or something like this um but um then i i think it it, it can be more than nothing it yeah as, as you, i would agree with you that's about 50 percent and um depends at which stage someone is with the with the piece and it could be a few really useful comments that if they can yes take, take them on board and uh Yes, in an early piece. And actually, I was talking to our um, mutual ex-professor, and um, she was talking a lot about the difficulties teaching on Zoom and all these pieces like Opus 111, Beethoven and everything. Now, in my um, experience so so far of this, the, the easier pieces to teach online are more linear, like Bach and um, Chopin that's not too textured maybe like mazurka and and um waltzes and but as soon as you get to sonata, this this kind of thing it, it's it overwhelms the sound and you just can't hear anything but in the the cleaner um more linear pieces i think it's okay yes that's a very good point yes so everybody everybody i teach is playing bark at the moment which is great for me too because I never played a lot of Bach in public, and I adore Bach, of course. So, it's 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 nice, and I think one of the great privileges of teaching is you learn a whole load of repertoire that you maybe didn't have the time to play, but you're learning it with a student. Do you find the same? 
Oh, absolutely. And it's it's funny how um, some repertoire that I would have said um, I'd have been intimidated to play or just say that it's not really my thing, let's say, and having to teach it, I realize I can really connect with that music, and I think, oh, maybe I'm going to play that. <laughs> and then you will. So what's on your yeah. what's on your repertoire hit list then? <laughs> my my quarantine repertoire. <laughs> yes. Well, I've learned the entire works of Robert Schumann because that's, that's also your thing. Have you learned to hold Chrysleriana or? I'm I'm working at Chrysleriana actually. Um, Wonderful. That's going to be your piece. <laughs> it's extremely difficult and strange and beautiful and uh, I, yes, yeah. <laughs> it, for me it sums up everything about Schumann in one one piece. I think it's extraordinary the passion, the introspect. It, it's for me, it's almost his most brilliant piece. If I had to choose the one, even if it's not maybe as audience friendly as the as the fantasy, but I I think it's the most extraordinarily complex and tender and crazy everything. Clara said she was really frightened when she first looked at that piece. She asked him to kind of rewrite, but she said, "I I, I feel very uh, frightened to to hear this music. I mean, can you imagine?" She's like, wanting more of the arabesque and you get Chrysleriana. <laughs> yes, I remember reading about that. And I remember every time I was listening to Chrysleriana after that, I was trying to listen with um, her ears in, in that context then and to get even more of that frightening element from it. Because, of course, we're, we're, we know it now and perhaps we're a bit more used to it. But uh, it's... <laughs> yes, and I was thinking, can you imagine it in a, in a sound world of where you know, people were listening, were, were listening to Schubert and Beethoven and down. And then you hear the first movement of, of Christ. It must've seemed like the craziest, most manic piece anyone had ever heard so far from Schubert leader and Mendelssohn songs without words and everything of the same time. Um, imagine what people must've thought. You can see why she was saying, can you write me something a bit more, you know, audience friendly. <laughs> yes. Toby, um, do you ever play the Blumenstück? I really love that piece. No, I haven't. It's, it's, I, I, I just think it's such a gem. I think with the arabesque, the two together are, I was listening to Horowitz play it um, on, on YouTube. It was one of his great, great encore pieces. And I think for me, that's one of the most underplayed little gems of, I say little, it's not little, little, but relative to Chrysleriana it is, but yeah, six minutes or something, and I just think it's heavenly. I don't know. I don't know why people don't really play it. So it'd be, it yes. would be a great opener. I I, I should have a, a look at it. I don't know it well. It it will yeah. be a great. Would you agree? Opening pieces are a nightmare on recital programs. Do you mean to to play or to choose? Yeah. What, what like the 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 piece you choose to play first? Yes. Is so important, and I've really judged that incorrectly on a number of occasions and um the thought now to go for me to go cold into mozart sonata at the beginning of a program when you're not warmed up and for some people that works that's just for me my favorite piece to start a program was always a buck busoni chacon or mendelssohn the first prelude and fugue something that's quite meaty and florid but is also quite romantic um yes rather than straight into Mozart for me that's do you do you agree what do you... I agree absolutely I mean something soft and fiddly is, is the absolute worst <laughs> nightmare when you're very nervous with. you don't you're not having the piano you're a bit cold and and I find the to me when I play something like Mozart also it's I become very self-conscious and probably things that don't sound very bad in the audience like uh, a little inequality or something it just makes me feel absolutely horrible about how I sound and it's not a good effect. <laughs> no, it's not a good effect. And then because because we all want that that nice feeling that you have when you step on the stage at the beginning of the second half, when you've yes. you've you've done the first half, hopefully it's gone OK, even if it's seven out of ten, that's OK. <clears throat> and um, you walk onto stage for second half, the audience has had a drink. You've had a drink, not that kind of drink, but um, <laughs> or maybe some people. Um, but then 
then I always feel my second halves are, I feel much more relaxed. Not always, always, but it's a nice feeling, the second half. Um, so I wish I could capture the feeling of the second half and put it into the first half, but that never quite works. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I realize I've taken quite a lot of your time already. No, no, no. It's, it's <laughs> lovely. We've been chatting for about an hour, I think. It's so nice. And just to connect and... We didn't have time to have conversations like this before. Uh... That's true. I mean, that's definitely a positive thing, isn't it? Um, to, to have that time just to s sit and chat. I mean, you and I have never been able to do that because um, we've never been in the right place at the right time. So it's, yes. it's lovely to do that. So that's that's a, a plus side of, of all this uh, horror. Yes. I love to watch this kind of... Um, interview i was watching one about a, a dancer called uh natalia osipova who's obviously major megastar ballerina and she was just chatting about her life sitting in a chair chatting to someone about her life and i i found it absolutely fascinating um to to hear that because it was as if i'd gone round to her house and we were having a drink and she was just telling me about her life step yes. by step Yes, and I, I find that somehow I, I feel it's really important now that uh, people hear artists like in this way, in a, in yes. a human way about their their lives. And You're right, because it is human. And, and um, maybe people, I mean, it's really tough to become any artist in any discipline, isn't it? You know, for your dad as a, a painter artist and for us as musicians and if you're a dancer or an actor and I think we all have so many disappointments along the way and it's not just about the great the great moments are about one percent and the rest is just hard work and you know some good luck but m many many things that don't, that don't go well and it's how you cope with all of that I think that's been yes. my great um life lesson because otherwise you would give up much sooner and not go forward you have to cope with all that do you find that you've got to cope with all the negative everything so maybe if with with the chats it's good for for putting that out there that people can know that it's not all wonderful a bed of roses and we've we've all worked really hard to get where we are and we have to keep working to to stay there thank you so much it's, it's been really interesting and uh I'm very happy we did this and that you had time. And it's, it's been a joy, Mihai, really has been lovely. And I hope to uh, see you soon in real life. Hope so. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Quarantine Notes. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this one, please subscribe. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider doing so on my Patreon page. <laughs>